announcement. Next Sunday morning and Sunday night is going to be in the Fenway room, one week only. The Fenway room is right next to the elevators. Uh, and the, there was a, a mishap by the hotel who owns this conference room, and they, they had a new employee who mistakenly booked and, and signed a contract with someone to use this room next Sunday morning. And so uh, we um, are doing everything we can to bless the hotel and cooperate with a smile and uh, move everyone over to the Fenway next Sunday morning. So that's what we're going to be doing. Sunday evening will also be down there. Rock the World will be here. But we just don't want to reset up all the sound equipment here for Sunday evening. So we will be there uh, next Sunday evening as well. Okay. Zechariah. What a book. That's all I have to say. What an incredible book. If you need a Bible, please raise your hands. This book is deep. That's all I have to say. And we will be getting into that this evening. But before we begin, let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, that the word is deep. It's not shallow. And in your word, we are told to dig real deep, to go down real deep and dig. And it says, if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. And that's why we um, are here this evening, Lord, to dig, dig deep, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would just bless this time. I also pray for all the ladies over at the, uh, the study the, at, uh, at 12 Iroquois. I pray for the kids in nursery and Sunday school that you would bless that as well. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Zechariah again mentions the Lord of hosts 53 times. The Lord of hosts 53 times. It mentions Jerusalem, Zion, or the city 44 times. 19 times mentions the restoration of uh, the Lord restore, restoring Israel. And 12 times the Lord installing a universal reign in Jerusalem. It is quoted 40 times in the New Testament. We mentioned some of these things last week. There's just one after another, remarkable pictures of Jesus Christ. We will see that again this uh, evening. Zechariah, a prophet, a young one. Some think he may have been as young as 10 years old when he started prophesying. We know from chapter 2, verse 4, which we're in tonight, uh, we're in chapter 2 tonight, that he was a young guy. More likely, he was probably something like 17 or 18. Interestingly, he is also a priest. How do we know that? Because his grandfather, his grandfather's name is Edo. So there's at least six women pregnant in our church. Daniel, is Mary still pregnant? She's still pregnant. Okay. She's getting really close, really close. So actually we have seven women pregnant in our church. And I thought maybe the baby had come today. Uh, And I really think it would be great if a son was named Edo. I think that would just be really cool. Sam, Emily, that's some ideas there. So um, uh, anyway, Edo, we know from Ezra and Nehemiah, was a priest. It says in verse 1 of chapter 1 that he was the son of Bechariah, the son of Edo, the prophet. Now, 
On Sunday evening, we, we dive deeper into the Word of God. It does say through the um, book of, throughout the book of Ezra, uh, Zechariah appears there, and it calls him the son of Edo throughout. He was actually the grandson of Edo. It's not an unusual thing for him to be called the son of Edo when he was the grandson. Although it could be that his father, Bechariah, died at a young age and he was raised by Edo. Again, very important that this uh, book is... uh, Can you also... uh, Sean, can you point that... (laughs) Uh, you actually can just turn that off because we're going to be using the screen. It was, unless, I guess they had t- maybe intended on using it as a spotlight. But um, it needs to be read alongside the book of Ezra. So, uh, again, Sean, can we get up? Let me see. What should we get up? Let's bring up the chart of the timeline of the prophets the timeline of the prophets. And so this is um, a picture of Israel here. Um, At the very top, you see United Kingdom under Saul, David, and Solomon. And there's, after that, there was a civil war. So on the left side is the northern kings. On the right side is the southern kings. The southern prophets are on the right. The northern prophets are there on the left, starting with Elijah, Elisha, and Amos. So if you can scroll down. These are all the prophets during the king. So um, the last king in the north was Hosea. uh, And you can keep on scrolling. In the south, there continued to be kings up until Zedekiah. You can keep on scrolling a little, a little higher. So Zedekiah, I'm sorry, yes, lower or higher. Zedekiah, go up. Go up with Zedekiah. (laughs) Other way. No, no. Make Zedekiah go up that way. (laughs) No, scroll it the other way. The other way. There you go. Keep on going. Keep on going. Keep on going. Up, 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 up. So you can just leave it there. Zedekiah was the last human uh, king, physical king, rather, of Israel. There will not be another physical, uh, a king physically reigning in Jerusalem until Jesus Christ. 586 BC, 586 years before Jesus died, King Zedekiah, who's one of Josiah's um, sons, uh, he actually was taken away to Babylon uh, by the King Nebuchadnezzar, and they destroyed Jerusalem. Many, many thousands of Jews were exiled into Babylon. On the left, you see Babylonian exile. During that time, Ezekiel and Daniel prophesied. And then under Zerubbabel in the middle, the Israelites were allowed to go back. They went back under order of the the Persian king and were uh, told under the command of the Persian king, a pagan king told them, you rebuild your temple. And they began to build the temple, but only for about a year or two. Then uh, the... Uh, emperor was replaced with another emperor. Some trouble was stirred up amongst the neighbors around Jerusalem who didn't want the temple to be built. They went back to the new emperor. He told them, yes, stop the, stop this temple. You guys are not allowed to build it. And for 15 years, the building project went silent. No hammering of stones, no building, no construction project, until, on your right-hand side, Haggai and Zechariah showed up. And they started, uh, and that's what the book of Ezra is all about. They showed up in Jerusalem and they said, what are you doing, people? You came back from Babylon in order to build the temple. And they said, well, we were ordered not to build it. And they said, ordered by who? The emperor. And they said, well, what did God say? He said, build it. Well, you better build it then. You better obey God. 
and uh, they started building uh, again by faith, knowing that there had been previously, in 15 years earlier, an order from the emperor to stop. And so the matter was taken back to the emperor. The emperor looked back to all the way to the original record of King Cyrus making an order to rebuild the temple, and they were allowed to continue, and they finished the temple. But they were stirred up by whom? Haggai and this guy who we're reading about this evening, Zechariah. And so uh, uh, in the first, uh, the first chapter in Zechariah, we see this is one of the prophets who received visions from the Lord. He received visions from the Lord. In chapter 1, verse 8, it says, I saw by night and behold a man riding on a red horse and it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow in uh, the hollow and behind him were horses red sorrel and white and so the the man uh, on the riding on the red horse is believed to be none other than a pre-incarnate uh, vision of Jesus uh, of, of Jesus Christ in other words an Old Testament uh, appearance of him in this in this vision and uh, he shows up and he speaks and uh, in verses 14 through 15 and 16 uh, the Lord says I am jealous for Jerusalem rather I'm zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great zeal and in King James, it says, I'm jealous for Jerusalem with a great zeal. And I'm exceedingly angry with the nations at ease, meaning the nations that were around Jerusalem that had been preventing them from building the temple. And so they begin to be, uh, the people of the land, after hearing Zechariah's vision, begin to be encouraged. And that's what prophecy um, often is about, the building up of the people. It's not always confronting for sin. Haggai, that was mostly his role. So these two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, they were like a tag team. Um, Haggai confronted them. Zechariah really built them up with an encouraging message that, look, God's in control. Trust the Lord. Uh, and it, it is what happened. And so uh, just going on into chapter 2, we read this. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Just think measuring tape or measuring line. They don't use measuring lines as much anymore. But just think of a construction guy with measuring out a property. And this is in a vision, remember. And also remember, he's actually sharing this with the people in Jerusalem who were there, and they're just a defeated people. For 15 years, they had been going about doing their business, making money, and doing whatever, taking care of their house. But they were a defeated people because... They weren't doing what God told them to do. This is a wonderful book. So is Haggai. It's an encouraging book just to, 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 to read when someone has just been a, in a backsliding mode. God has told them. He's put a call on their life, but they're just ignoring the call on their life, and they're just sitting on their behinds when they should be up. And, you know, prophecy is an interesting thing. You know, so, some people have that prophetical gift that just goes in and just rebukes. But then there's another kind of prophecy that just goes in and encourages. Look, this is what God wants to do with you. And that's what Zechariah is about. And so in verse 2, Zechariah um, says to this man, so is this his vision? <laughs> this guy uh, walking around with a measuring line. And Zechariah says to him in verse 2, hey, where are you going? It must be really nice to like talk to angels like this, just so matter-of-factly. Hey, you know, like, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem to see what is its width and what is its length. Remember, he's talking to people who are supposed to be building. And it's, it's going to be encouraging to them to know that, wow, God's behind this building project. God's behind the calling in my life. 
I've been called to be a Sunday school teacher. God's behind that. I've been called to be um, in inner city missions. God's behind that. He's measuring out my ministry. It's not me. God's called me to be a, uh, a mom and a wife. He's doing the measuring line. It's his project. He's called me to be um, a, a, a musician, a Bible teacher, a, a church planner, whatever. It's he that has the measuring line in his hand. It's, it's encouraging to me that, 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 you know, in verse 2, obviously God knows the width and the length of Jerusalem. Obviously he does. He's doing this whole thing, this vision, for Zechariah and the people. It, it, it's encouraging for me to know, just as a pastor, that he's got all the details measured out. I think I have to worry about the details. As if God didn't know anything about him. I need to have to figure them out for the Lord. No. God's in the details. He's in the inches, the millimeters, or whatever thing, system of measurement they use at the time. Verse 3. And there was the angel who talked with me going out. And another angel was coming out to him. So in the previous chapter, we see that there was an angel, chapter 1, verse 9, was one of the people in this vision. It's a kind of cool vision where he's talking to people in the vision. In chapter 1, there was this angel, different than the guy with the measuring line. And he's saying, and there was the angel, verse 3, talking with me, going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him, who said to him, in other words, one angel says to the other angel, run, speak to this young man, referring to Zechariah, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls because of the multitude of men and livestock in it. For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around her and I will be the glory in her midst. Now this had to be so encouraging to people who had been living just a defeated life in Jerusalem. Had to be so encouraging that wow, this is God's city. Jerusalem is the Lord's city. And verse four, interestingly enough, is a short-term prophecy and a long-term prophecy, short-term, because the walls were not going to be built for a number of years, the walls of Jerusalem, for a number of years. So, so Jerusalem would start to thrive even without walls. But remember, in Nehemiah, which comes right after Ezra, the walls are built. But today, there's a literal fulfillment of this prophecy. How do we know that? Jerusalem, if you go there, it just, there's the old city and people go up to the walls of Jerusalem, but of course, the city is spread out far, far beyond the walls of Jerusalem. And so, um, it, it, you know, it, it also talks uh, just about uh, a multitude of men and livestock will, will be in it. And you know, and in the surrounding areas. And, and again, keep in mind that, keep in mind that at this time, it's just desolated, this whole area. The Babylonians had come in and destroyed everything. It was a desolate land. And you can imagine just being there and just looking out. And it's just desolation. And you're thinking, there's no way. There's, I can't even imagine and, you know, it, it's like that, it, you know, in our lives sometimes. You, you go into, you just go into a, a, a time in your life where because of sin or whatever, it just looks like desolation all around. And, and then the Word of God, uh, someone just prophetically speaks into your life and say, all this is, your life is going to be totally reestablished. It's almost impossible to believe it. You need a specific word from the Lord. That's why it's so important, by the way, that, we, you know, we believe at Calvary Chapel, that the Bible teaches that the gifts of the Spirit are for today. There's many in the church today 
God bless them. I love them. They're brothers and sisters in Christ, but they believe all the prophetical gifts stopped at the time of the New Testament um, when, when, you know, when the apostles, after their death, the, those gifts stopped. That's crazy. We need prophetical gifts in our lives today. We need someone to come into our lives and speak prophetically, like Zechariah speaking um, here and into life. Has there been abuse with this type of thing? You know, prophesying into people's lives things that will never take place, just be sort of a, a flesh thing? Yes, but that doesn't mean you throw the baby out with the bathwater. And, and, and so it had to be so encouraging. In chapter 1, verse 16, it says that there will be, uh, rather 17, it refers, he's telling them there's, there's actually going to be cities the cities of this area shall again spread out through prosperity. You know, it's interesting reading in the book of Luke and I'm going through the book of Luke now, just references to the cities all around, uh, all around Israel. Cities. Northern Israel was densely pop- populated. It was on a trade route. There were cities there. It, it speaks in one place of the cities and surrounding villages of the cities. Uh, major populaces, but at this time they just there was just so much desolation. Yeah, there was neighboring communities and nations and and this type of thing, but it was just a shadow, if anything, of what it had formerly been. And so he says, "For I," says the Lord, "will be a wall of fire all around her, and I will be the glory in her." Midst. Let's come back to that verse as we get when we come into the next chapter when it talks about spiritual warfare because that's a that's a great great verse to remember when we're considering spiritual warfare, which the next chapter uh, is all about actually warfare against Satan and in, in, in the demonic realm. Verse six: Up, up, flee from the land of the north, says the Lord. So this. When it says, says the Lord, this appears to be the man on the red horse from chapter one. Up, up, flee from the land of the north. Who's he speaking to there? He's speaking to all the Jews who had been taken prisoner by the Assyrians. By the Assyrians and the ten tribes in the north. Can you scroll up... um, uh, scroll up a little, Sean, here. Right there. Stop there. So Hosea was the last king of the north, the northern ten tribes, which included, by the way, the area of Galilee where Jesus w- was from. The Assyrians from the north, the kingdom from the north, in the year 732 to 722 just came in and completely wiped out the, the, the children of Israel in the north and, and took them to all their different n- the nations that were vassals of the time at, at, uh, of, of Assyria. And they just, they, they were scattered throughout their land. Right here in verse six, this is the Lord speaking to them. Flee from the land up to the north. Come back to Jerusalem. Of course, there's a longer term prophecy here of Israel being resettled in the 20th century. And they really came from the north. The, the, I think that I don't remember what the figures are of the amount of Jews that have settled in Palestine from Russia. Hundreds of thousands of Jews have come down there. So there's a long-term fulfillment of this prophecy as well as we see throughout the prophets. There's short-term, medium-term, and long-term fulfillment. And it says, For I have spread you abroad like the four winds of heaven, says the Lord. Verse 7, up Zion, escape you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. So here, it's not talking about the Israelites from the northern ten tribes who with, uh, after the time of the last king, Hosea, were spread out in all kinds of nations in the north. It's speaking to the Jews who, um, under the reigns of Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah, the last four kings of um, it, who reigned in Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar Nazareth came in three time and, and, and took the Israelites captive and brought them back more to the south in Babylon. 
And he's, uh, here he's speaking to those. And, and he's saying in verse 7, you, you come back. Escape you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. And so he's, he's calling the Jews back to Jerusalem. Verse 8, for thus says the Lord of hosts, okay, get ready for, you know, <laughs> this morning we talked about the hardest verse in the Bible. This, may, this, is, this is a close second or third or fourth. A incredible picture into the Trinity here in verses 8 and 9. For, for thus says the Lord of hosts, He sent me. The me there is a capital M. The H is a capital H. He sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For surely I will shake my hand against them and they shall become spoil for their servants. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me, capital M. Now, if you really, really look at this closely, this is really confusing if you do not believe in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three separate persons, but one. Let's continue. I'm going to loop back to that. But it says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people, and I will dwell in your midst. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me, capital M, to you. So at the beginning of verse 11, they shall become my people, capital M, and I will dwell in your midst. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. These four verses are a picture of God the Father sending Messiah, sending Jesus, sending them, sending him rather, in this particular context, number one, to make sure Jerusalem was going to be protected so they could rebuild it. But more importantly, this is a picture of the ret a return of Christ where it says in verse 11, it says, many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day and they shall become my people. That is heavy, especially in the Old Testament. This is a reference to the nations, the Gentile, the goyim. This is written in Hebrew, not Greek, but, but this is the nations, the non-Jews becoming my people. And I'm told that Hebrew scholars are confounded by these four verses because it is clear that in, in, throughout these verses that he and me are both referring to God, to the Lord. And so now, if you run into a Jehovah's Witness or whoever, they, well, the Bible doesn't teach the Trinity, hey, there's probably other places I would send you to first, but take them to Zechariah chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. <laughs> Chapter 12 has the most, has the most confounding verse where it says, they will look upon me, Jehovah, whom they pierced. Explain that one. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. So a wonderful picture of the Trinity in the Old Testament and the Lord will take possession of Judah as his inheritance in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. It had to be so encouraging to the people living in Jerusalem, living a defeated life. They had a, put a call of God was on their life. They 
basically have been beaten up by the enemy, Satan, who's going to show up in the next chapter. They've been beaten up, defeated by the enemy, just as brothers and sisters, some of whom we know, just beaten up by the enemy. They're living a defeated life. And God's coming in and he's saying, I will again choose you. Meaning, and, and of course we know that Jerusalem has, was, had always been chosen by the Lord. But I'm going to get you and I'm going to use you because you're mine. Be silent all flesh before the land for he is aroused from his holy habitation. Remember, he's talking about the second coming of Christ here. And you're reading the news today and everyone's screaming and yelling about, the, about Palestine. Just voices all over the world. People screaming, yelling, you know, talking head political shows on Fox News or CNN or whatever, giving their opinions, who really owns this land. It's all going to be silent, says verse 13, when Jesus comes. Be silent all flesh before the Lord. And when he shows up and takes care of business at the end of the tribulation period and comes to return to earth, eh, there ain't going to be no more clamoring about who owns that land in Palestine. It's going to be all be silent. By the way, trivia. We're kind of informal here on Sunday nights. How many times in the Bible is the term Holy Land used? I'll give you four seconds. Four, three, two, one, zero. James, we just read it in verse 12. (laughs) Okay, second try. How many times is the phrase Holy Land used in the Bible? One. Did I say 12? Did I hear? 15. Five. 365. Paul Presley, come up. Get your reward. I, I, I have a sticker for you. I have a sticker for you. I have a sticker for Paul. Um, I'm going to put it on his head right here. He's got it. Go ahead. One. This is the only time in the Bible that the term Holy Land <laughs> is used. The only time. Isn't that interesting? And of course, you know, we know that it's, it's only going to... Um, James is complaining he didn't get a sticker. But um, no, no in, in he, even in Hebrew, it says Holy Land, James. Um, but uh, uh, we know that really it's not going to be truly Holy Land. We call it Holy Land, but it's not going to really be Holy Land until Jesus dwells there. He's, he, he's there. His presence uh, is there. Okay, buckle your seatbelts. Chapter 3, then he showed me, remember this is a vision, Joshua the high priest. Now, in the book of Ezra, Zerubbabel was the governor of Palestine, of, uh, of that area. Zerubbabel was Jewish. He, he was not a king. He was a governor. He was more or less... You wouldn't say a puppet, but puppet. He was a legitimate governor uh, that was delegated responsibility over the Persians, kind of like King Herod or Pilate. And uh, it says, then he showed me, uh, uh, so Zerubbabel was the governor, but Joshua, Jeshua, same name as Jesus, was the high priest. Here's a real intense scene here. Some people say, oh, uh, Satan is a, creation of the New Testament. You will hear people say that. Oh, really? What about Zechariah chapter 2? They will be very impressed. Of course, the book of Job as well. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at the right hand to oppose him. Oh, this is just going to get. This is going to get really, really. This is good stuff coming up here. I'm sorry. I'm, this is just exciting to me. But um, you know, when you do ministry, Satan opposes you. 
every time someone steps up to the plate in ministry, even if it's the first time they've ever been in ministry at, the, at this church, we tell them, you're going to have spiritual warfare. And though it's true this morning, Satan is a created being, and he's not around here, <laughs> you know, this evening. A third of the angels in heaven fell with him when he fell. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the earth. A third of the angels followed him. There's a demonic realm that the Bible teaches that, that is opposing you and what the Lord wants you to do. You covenant in your heart to spend more time in the word every single day. You will be opposed by the demonic realm by the principalities and powers of the earth. If you, if you covenant in your heart to, 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 for a, a period of time to pray, that's such a powerful thing. When the people of God begin to pray, you will be opposed. If you decide that you want to step up in ministry or if you want to step up in leadership, you're going to be opposed. Here, the, the high priest, you know, so many times I'm preparing sermons, messages, and on Saturday, just this intense spiritual warfare. The enemy of my soul messing with my mind, putting all kinds of crazy, awful thoughts in my head, and just trying to convince me this is such a, a, a useless endeavor that what you're doing, no one takes you seriously. Are you kidding me? It's real. And, and I, just, I just feel for this guy, even though he's dead now and he's in heaven. Joshua, the high priest, had Satan himself opposing him. Satan's always had, Jerusalem's always been a big deal to Satan. Satan himself is opposing him. Verse 2, the Lord said to Satan, this is Jehovah. Whenever you see Lord, all caps, that's Jehovah. When you see Lord, big L, Small O-R-D, that's Adonai. But this is Jehovah. It's the man on the red horse. Said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And that's very interesting, a brand plucked from the fire. That's a difficult message, verse to interpret. It appears to mean here that, yeah, these guys are serious sinners. They rebelled unbelievably for a long time. And they were devoured from the fire. And they deserved every single bit of it that they got. But I, they're mine. And I chose them. And I have plucked them from that place. And I'm going to use them again. And praise the Lord, he's doing the same thing. He does the same thing with you. Exact same thing. The Bible says in, in the book of Revelation, day and night, Revelation 12, he stands, Satan stands at the throne of God and accuses you. And it says that Jesus is ever interceding there. And if they're right, you're right. I'm not arguing with you. He just did that. He just went into a porn site. She just lied or cheated on her husband. Um, he just acted like a complete hypocrite. Uh, she just stole a bunch of money. But Jesus is ever interceding and says, you're right. They are a brand plucked from the, the fire. In, in, in John chapter 3, it says the wrath of God is over, remains on anyone who has not believed in Christ and until they do believe in Christ. Yeah, they, we're, we're, in a sense, we're all born 
underneath the fire, the consuming fire, judgment of God, and we're all plucked out for salvation. Verse 3, now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. Amazing. It says Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. This is good stuff. Then, then he, aimed, he, the Lord, a- answered and spoke uh, to those who stood before him saying, take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, see, I have removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with rich robes. You see, Satan had a lot of legitimate stuff to be accusing this guy of. You know, it, it's, it's hard being a Bible teacher or someone in a position of authority because Satan is or, uh, always condemning you. It's, it's hard being um, a follower of Jesus Christ. Satan, he's got the goods on you. There's filthiness in your life and in your heart. God help us if there was a video reel, a DVD of what went through our mind even for one day. And it's interesting here, here's God acknowledging to Satan himself that, yeah, this guy wears filthy garments. But he says, take away the filthy garments. What did, what did, Joshua the high priest have to do to make this happen? Anyone? Just had to have faith. Have faith in the promises of God. Of course, he would have known about the blood, about the day of atonement, about about the importance of blood being remission of sin, but he just had faith in that. He can't do, we can't do anything else to remove our filthy garments. And it says in verse four, in the middle of verse four, see I have removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with rich robes. A couple things so important that you understand. that Satan has no power over you. Satan or his demonic realm has no power over you. Why? Verse 2 of chapter 3 says, because the Lord has chosen you. We're allowed to step right into the shoes of Israel here, of Jerusalem. He's chosen you. You go through 1 John. I love all the verses in 1 John. 1 John 2.12, I write you young men because you have overcome the, the wicked one. 1 John 3.8, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. Verse 3, every spirit who does not confess Jesus is, is, has come in the flesh and is not of God. And that is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard who is coming, is now already in the world. but greater is the power in you. Greater is the power in you than the spirit of the Antichrist. I love verse four too. I would rather First John chapter five, verse 18. You of God, you are of God, little children. It says, he, is the, he who has been begotten of God, he has been born again, keepeth himself and the wicked one toucheth him not. Because of the Spirit of God in us, we can keep ourselves, we can abide with the Lord, and the wicked one toucheth him not. Now it is interesting there, we gotta be about the business that the Lord has called us to be. Otherwise, the Lord literally will allow Satan to, to beat us up, chasten us. Satan will be used it's like he was in the book of Job to, ch- to, 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 for, uh, to, to discipline, to chasten us. Now Job was a, was a, was, was a righteous uh, man, was chastened for different reasons, but it's the same principle. Joshua here was going about the business of the Lord. And that's why 
Satan had no power over him. If you're going about the business of the Lord, it doesn't mean you're not sinning, but you're not laying hold of sin and saying, I have a right to this sin. Satan cannot touch you. In the book of Revelations, uh, Revelation, it says that Satan will be cast into the abyss for a thousand years and an angel seals him there. Same word, seal, used in 2 Corinthians chapter one. Uh, chapter one. You have been sealed with, from, with the Holy Spirit guaranteeing what is to come. Same word for seal. Satan can't undo that seal. Colossians 2.15, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. Speaking of the principalities and power of the air, the demonic realm. He made a public disgrace of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Psalm 27:11, one of my favorite verses, keep me on a straight path because of my enemies. Satan will knock us off. He will take us out with a bow and arrow if we get off the path of the Lord. The good news is we can get right back on just as we just read about in the first three verses of Zechariah. God acknowledges, you're right, Satan. They're like a brand plucked from the fire, but still, they're my chosen one. This is exciting stuff. Verse five says, and, and I said, let them put a clean turban on it. <laughs> this is Zechariah speaking. He's like, wow, this is really cool. Well, let them put a clean turban on his head too. He's like, oh, you know, uh, I think I'm going to get in the business of, like, uh, figuring out what, uh, deciding what, uh, what clothes to put on uh, the high priest Joshua, uh, Joshua. And they put clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. Verse 6. Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, so that word angel, by the way, is the Hebrew word messenger. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways, if you will keep my commands, then you shall also judge or rule my house, meaning be, being a high priest, and likewise you will have charge of my courts. I will give you places to walk among those who stand here. In other words, you're not cleaned and restored by the Lord to go out and just flesh out. You're restored by the Lord to serve him. God didn't put the wedding garments on you in order to, Matthew 22, the, the parable of the, uh, the, the wedding banquet, he doesn't put the wedding garments on you, the, the, the garments of, that represent the perfection of, of Jesus Christ, which we talked about this morning, perfect life of Jesus was credited us. He doesn't do that for us to just be fat and happy. He does it for us to serve. And that's what he does with Joshua here. He goes, okay, you're restored. You shouldn't have waited 15 years to get this project going, but there's grace. Project's going to be going, and now you're going to serve here. I'm going to give you the privilege of serving. You can imagine just the shame on this guy's life. He was a leader. He wasn't supposed to be sitting back for 15 years. He was supposed to be serving as a high priest. Verse 8, hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are wondrous, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant the branch. Jeremiah 23.5, I believe. Isaiah 11.1, 1, also a reference to the branch, which is a name of Jesus Christ. So again, as we see many of, the, many of, these, pro, um, of these prophecies, the, the minor prophets, as well as Isaiah and, and Jeremiah, just all of a sudden, they give a wondrous picture of Messiah. And, and that's, that's going to be an encouragement to the people they're speaking to then as well as us today. 
Again, verse 8, Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon the stone are seven eyes. Anyone want to? take an educated, sanctified guess as to who the stone with seven eyes is? It's Jesus. He's the stone. He's the branch. First Peter chapter 2, verse 6, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief stone cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Behold, I will engrave its inscription. Verse 9 continues. Says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. That's the verse we were in this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. In one day I will remove the iniquity of that land. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. That's a reference just to the millennial reign where there's going to be enormous material prosperity. It says in the reign of Solomon that every man dwelled under his vine and under his fig tree. And so it's just a symbol of pro- prosperity. So it's a, it's a look forward to that. This is a very encouraging chapter to me. And I hope it is to you. We're the Lord's possession. And he takes personal responsibility, number one, to remove our filthy garments and replace it with clean ones, the, 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 the righteousness of Christ, but also just to, to protect us in spiritual warfare. Yeah, it can be a ferocious battle out there. So you're doing the work of the Lord. There's nothing to fear. The Lord Jesus is our rear guard and he goes before us and he protects us. Okay, so we're going to spend the last 15 minutes this evening in prayer. We do this on Sunday night. We just break up into groups of four or five people and we pray. And we pray about uh, just using the, the, the scripture that we just read about as a springboard for prayer, but also we pray about a ministry that uh, our church supports. So if you could just break up now and I'll return to you in two or three minutes. The worship, someone from the worship team, Danielle, you're gonna come up, is going to play, uh, sing for us and, and do worship and we are going to just pray with each other. If you need to leave now, the usher in the back.